Follow along in your Bibles as I read God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, or Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, that is, it was Passover, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus... When they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who had seen has testified. And his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And they again, and again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures always. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask now that you bless it, change our hearts, save souls that are lost in this place, and build up your saints. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I saw a number of you smiling when I said, we'll finish today, Lord willing. It's, it's, it's one of those things, when you get to these passages, I told Pastor Morris three weeks ago, I said, you know, this is no doubt the most difficult part of John to preach because it's so dense. It's so complex. Uh, it's, uh, it's so multifaceted. Uh, I think probably I've already prepared sermons ahead in chapter 20, but I, I've pretty much concluded that we're not going to be done with 19 today. Uh, whether I finish 19 or not, we're not going to be done with it because I want to at least preach one sermon on, on the worship that's being offered on the cross. This is the great high priest offering the perfect sacrifice, and that takes you to the, to the whole context of, of old covenant worship. Jesus was offering perfect, unblemished worship so that when you and I don't, God doesn't zap us for it. When we sit here and our minds wander to tomorrow, and that's not good, I'll just tell you now. Or if they wander back to last night, God doesn't punish us. Because Jesus offered perfect worship, and that perfect worship was credited to us. So, just wait. That's a sermon that's coming, because I can't get to that today. Bradley's saying right now, you're not going to get to point three today. And that's maybe true. But let's go to point two. Let's just get going with that. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to start with, back to a point I made last week, Jesus the mediator. Jesus was hanged there between them, if you notice. There was a man on either side. We looked at that last week. Jesus is not only the mediator between God and man, hanging between heaven and earth, but he's also the mediator between men. He's placed between them. And that's not insignificant. Uh, I hope you had a good discussion about that at the, at the dinner table last Lord's Day, uh, thinking about that, that 
He's not only the one who reconciles us with God, but he is the one, if there's going to be reconciliation between one another, he's the one that's going to bring that reconciliation as well. But that's not where we're going today because that's what we did last week. But notice something here, that John stresses that the other gospel writers don't. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross. Now, some of you thought last week, and you went and read to check your memories, that the other gospel writers that comment on this tell us that there was a man named Simon of Cyrene. And that at some point along the Via Dolorosa, as they, they've, it's come to be called over the centuries, Simon was called to take up the cross of Jesus and carry it. Luke tells us that particularly. Luke would do that, wouldn't he? He's a medical doctor. He's a preeminent historian, but he's also a physician. He would have told us this about Simon because, remember, a couple of weeks ago, how Jesus has been beaten to, and mutilated to the point of death. That was the whole point of those beatings that he would have taken. They didn't want him to quite die, but they wanted him to be so close to death. So Simon is called in to take the cross. But John doesn't tell us that. John wants us to know something. Remember what John's doing. He's doing theology. And he's doing theology so that we might believe these things. He brings that up again here, doesn't he? We get to that later, today or next time. He says, why did, I, why did, why did this happen? So that I would witness it so that you would believe. This is John's refrain all the way through. So that you might believe, so that you might believe, so that you might believe. He gives us all these reasons to believe. And what he's doing here is he's wanting us to remember that we have to believe that Jesus Christ bore our sins. Simon of Cyrene didn't bear our sins. Just because he took the cross for some period of time, he didn't take our sins. Jesus bore the cross. The weight of our sins, that's what the cross represents. The weight of our sins, the burden of our sins, the death that's coming if we continue in our sin apart from Jesus Christ. John wants us to deal with this. He went out bearing his own cross. That's all he says. That's a theological point. John wants us to know he, Jesus, would bear the burden that was symbolized in the cross. He bore the weight of the church so that all his people might be saved. This is a part of what Jesus was praying for a few hours earlier in the nighttime when he said, Father, this cup, if you can take this cup away, but not my will, but your will be done. This is part of that cup of wrath that was being poured out upon our Savior Jesus by the Father. That divine wrath that was being poured out upon him that you and I deserve. Not perfect Jesus, but he assumed our place that he might take our sins. And that's what the cross is about. That's why John just makes it very simple. Bearing, notice what he says, his own cross. The men on either side. 
of Jesus were thieves, insurrectionists, verbal abusers, as we learn in another gospel account, the soldiers. If we know nothing else about the soldiers, when we read verses 23 and uh, 23 and 24, they were greedy. We could say they were bloodthirsty too because anyone that could know all things about Jesus that the public knew about Jesus and that Pilate even testified about Jesus, I find nothing wrong with this man. This man has done nothing wrong. And then you could still take him to the cross. You could beat him mercilessly like they had. They were greedy, bloodthirsty men. You say, okay, why are we talking about them? Well, because they're part of the story. They represent us. We're thieves and liars. You say, oh, wait, wait. I've never stolen anything. Yeah, you have. Even if you've, never, if you've never walked off with a pencil or a... The other day I got caught. I was turning away at the bank from the window and that old pen was about to go in my pocket, and the young lady said, oh, 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 uh, I think that's mine. And I said, oh, you're right. Mine's right here. Sorry about that. But even if that's never happened, and by the way, that is stealing. It's, it's not yours. But even if we've never stolen anything from anyone, we've stolen from God. We've stolen the glory he deserves by taking credit for things ourselves, right? Let's never forget that. Let's never minimize that. We're thieves. We're robbers. We're verbal abusers. We're greedy. And sometimes, do you ever catch yourself? Maybe it's even a a TV mystery, and it's the bad guy And the good guy, the police, the law enforcement, whoever it is, they've got him. And you say, kill, shoot him, shoot him now. Don't give him a chance. Yeah, I heard amens in laughter and in your faces. We can be bloodthirsty too. And that's who Jesus died for. That's. The sinners that he died for. Listen to what Paul, how he, how Paul summarizes it. Of course, we know Paul uses the the book of Psalms to summarize it in Psalm in Romans chapter three. There is none righteous, not even one. But listen to how he does it to the church at Corinth. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not do not be deceived? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor those habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of God. The key to that verse is we were all sinners But in Christ Jesus, that's past tense. But such were some of you. We don't continue that way. Because something remarkable happens 
when Jesus bore our sins on the cross. Notice, after they've cast lots for the single garment, the tunic, which would have been closest to Jesus' skin, something I said last week we couldn't do, we weren't going to do, is all the fulfillment of Scripture that's mentioned by John here. That's immediately called up. Now, were those soldiers thinking, hey, let's fulfill some Scripture here? No. They probably didn't even know the Old Testament. But even if they did, they weren't thinking, hey, hey, let's, let's fulfill some scripture. But John saw it, and he tells us. And then the soldiers did these things. He turns then, but standing by the cross of Jesus, that but... We've got something of a shift taking place here, right? Buts and therefores you pay attention to. But standing by, here are these soldiers, these greedy, bloodthirsty soldiers, these wicked men hanging on either side of Christ. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, and we, through history, have come to, to, come to think this is John, most likely. This disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After this... Now, John doesn't often do this. He doesn't often show you immediate historical happenings, right? We've talked about this before. he's He's using these historical narratives to do theology. But now he gets historical. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished... To fulfill the scripture, said, I'm thirsty. By the way, that's a fulfillment of scripture too. And then he said, it is finished. I don't know about you. When you read this passage just earlier with me, perhaps preparing for this uh, from the email yesterday or from the past weeks. Does it seem kind of strange to you that in the midst of Jesus on the cross... Bearing the burdens of our sins. John, who does all things theological, throws in this thing about the mother and the son. Now, if you're a reader, you would think that doesn't fit. You would think that an author that would do that, something got out of place. He got ahead of himself or, a, or something. I, what happened here? Yeah, but see, John, this is part of the redemptive story. And he doesn't want us to miss something vital here. That what's taking place 
on this day, in this place, in this very moment, is what Paul talks about. When he says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. You see, Jesus... John wants us to know something more here than, okay, so Mary has a new residence. See, it was, it was the custom when the oldest son, if he died or was not able to care for his mother, then the next son would. But, but Jesus doesn't say to his half-brothers, behold your mother. You know, I'm not going to be able to take care of her. Obviously, I'm about to die. It's your turn. But he goes outside the family. Now, some say John was perhaps a, a, a cousin. That may be, but it, that doesn't affect this fact. He doesn't say to the brothers, this is your mother. He says to John, this is your mother. Because, see, there's something spiritual taking place here. Herman Ritterboss is perhaps... The, the, the most outstanding biblical theologian of the latter half of the, second, of, of the 20th century. That's still hard to say because I, I kind of feel like I'm, I live there, you know. Actually, I live in the 19th century, but that's, that's another thing. Um, Ritterboss says, after he goes into his full... Biblical theological discourse from Genesis to Revelation, he says, this is a reference to the new family of God. Things changed when Jesus came. When Jesus came and when he died, everything shifted. I mean, even secular historians say things like that, don't they? If you read secular history, they'll, they'll, they'll reckon that you go back to the, this time when Jesus lived and whatever took place, whatever you believe about him, who he was, what he did, history shifted. We even, we even reckon with it with the B.C. and the A.D. thing, or now the B.C.E. and the C.E., because we don't want to talk about Jesus if we don't have to. But it's still Jesus. He's... The one that shifted everything. As others have said, he's the one that turned the world upside down. And all of a sudden now, he's saying, this is not about, this is what I'm doing is not about biological families. It's not about ethnicity. This is about faith. This is about salvation. This is about redemption. Well, how does, how, does, how does Paul talk about this? Do you remember how Paul talks about this? He says in Galatians, 
he says that, that we are not descendants of Abraham by blood. It's amazing how people can miss this, isn't it? He says that there's neither Jew or Gentile, there's neither slave or master, male or female, but there's only one who is in Christ through faith. And Jesus gives us that right here when he makes this, Behold your mother, behold your son. Jesus had already told him this was coming. I'm going to be the reason father will turn against son, mother against daughter, daughter against mother. As I've said here before, there's something thicker than blood, folks, and it's the spirit. Salvation. Some of you in this room have had to choose between your children and Christ. When they have sinned against God and when they've taken directions against God and nature. Why? Because spirit is thicker than blood. Redemption is more precious than genealogy. And that's right here. John's not doing something just, oh, This is Jesus being compassionate. It was compassionate, the care of his mother, but it was also also ecclesiological. It was also redemptive. Our confession of faith says that salvation comes ordinarily in and through the church. That's how important the church is. Some of you grew up in the church, and you love the church. The reason reason we battle in the church courts, the reason we stand for truth is because we love our mother, the church. You say, well, you know, yeah, don't do that to me. Because I'm going to tell you what, Jesus Christ, did did you listen to what I read? Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church, he came and presented himself for the church. Paul says elsewhere that he died for the church. That's how precious the church is. That's why Jesus did this. He was establishing something bigger than the nuclear family. He was establishing something that the nuclear family pointed to. Paul picked up on it right here in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. Oh, by the way, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the church. Oh, well, yeah, I am actually talking about you husbands loving your wives and your wives submitting to your husbands. But I'm talking about the church. He wasn't just talking about John and Mary. He was talking about the church. This this family of God, the new family of God. That's the reason that Paul could say in Galatians that Christ 
has died for us, even the new, even, he said, the Israel of God. It's the reason Peter could talk about the church in terms of the Old Testament people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. Because he understood that Christ, when he came in that moment, in that time, he died for his people. Old covenant, new covenant. Present, past, and future. Because he chose us from eternity past. There's only one people. And he accomplished that for his people. Well... One last thing, and then we'll get to point three next time. Or if Pastor Morris comes down with Ellie's recent crud tonight, we'll see. We won't pray that for him, but in case it happens, tell him I'm ready. After this, knowing that all things had been accomplished, noticed had already been accomplished, he said, I'm thirsty. They stick out this sour wine, and he says, to Telestai. He said, no, it says, it is finished. Yeah, that's the English. It's one word in the Greek. It's perfect tense. Has continuing, abiding effect. He's not going to suffer again. It's passive. That means what took place on that cross came from outside of Jesus. It came outside of us. Just like our salvation is external to us. What he did was external. It was, it was from the Father at work in and through his Son to accomplish all that we need as sinners. And then notice one last thing. We all die... Not at our time. I've seen people suffer. Some of you have too. I remember hearing my mother in the last few months of her life say over and over, I just want to be with the Lord. This is, I'm, 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 I'm tired, I'm done. I want to be with Jesus. But you know what? She couldn't just say, okay, one, two, three. Whew, I'm with Jesus. Because God had numbered her days. It was appointed a day for her to die. And she could not, and therefore would not, die one moment sooner. Many of you have family stories you could tell just like that. But did you see what it says here? After he says, it is finished, he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And the most beautiful thing the English is not as, not as clear and simple as the Greek. He voluntarily, at that moment, determined to die. He was in control right up until the end. Nothing that had happened took place without his consent. We've seen John tell this story all the way through, haven't we? 
how often they came to get him to kill him and he just was gone. He didn't go into the city when the disciples thought he should go into the city. He went later on in his own time. And the same thing on the cross. He voluntarily, of his own accord, took his last breath. And he did that for us. It is finished. What he came to do for us. And what did he come to do? You'll call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Who are his people? The church of the living God. And here's the question. Children. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Next time, we're going to see in Joseph and Nicodemus the fulfillment of that Zechariah 12.10 passage. They looked upon him whom they had pierced. Notice that's not a far fulfillment. This is not talking about something at the end of the ages. John says it was fulfilled right here as they were looking at him. We're going to see the life-changing effect of what Jesus did. But right now, the question for all of us is, do we believe in this Jesus? This one who died for sinners because there's no hope otherwise. Father, thank you for sending your son and for him doing all this for us. We love you. We adore you. We pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would, we would enjoy the finished work of Jesus. There's nothing left. All that's left is for him to come back and to establish the new heavens and new earth at that appointed time. But everything for our salvation has been finished. We thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your spirit who applies it to us richly. And we pray now that we'd all leave this place trusting Jesus and living for Jesus. Amen.